There was in Damascus a disciple named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, go, rise, and go to the street called Straight, and by the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus called Saul, for behold, he is praying, and he has had a vision of a man named Ananias come to him, lay hands on him, that he may regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, about the evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has letters from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and before kings and before the children of Israel. For I will show him just how much he is to suffer for the sake of my name. And so Ananias departed and entered the home and laying his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the way from which you came, sent me that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking some food, he was strengthened. And for many days, he was with the disciples in Damascus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks to you, God. Josh was a bitter young man. He'd grown up the son of an abusive, wife-beating alcoholic during college as a bitter, angry atheist and a pre-law student. Josh set out to disprove Christianity. But as the evidence piled up, he was convinced that Jesus Christ was in fact who the Bible says he is. He accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior, and Josh McDowell was a changed man. But shortly after his conversion, Josh nearly died in a car accident, and while in hospital, his father came to see him. How does the story go? You'll have to wait to the end of the sermon. As we look at this story of Ananias and Saul in Acts chapter 9, verses 10 to 19. If you want to turn there with me, we have to ask the question, how is Ananias able to do this? How is he able to follow the direction of the Lord and go to this murderous enemy called Saul of Tarsus, call him brother, pray for him, and welcome him into the Christian community. How can he do this? How can Ananias do this? I mean, I loathe the Toronto Maple Leafs. I really loathe the Toronto Maple Leafs. I'm from Canada. The Leafs played this week against Dallas, and I wanted to go to the game with a big poster that says, I am Canadian, and I loathe Toronto. We lost badly. And so after the game, I sent a text message to my former bishop, Bishop Charlie Masters. Many of you have met him before. He's been here before. And he's a big Leafs fan. I will forgive him for that. And I did say, well, Bishop Charlie, my team played terribly. 
To which I got a text response, no, you didn't play terribly, you, pr- you played hospitably. It was your Texas hospitality that let us win so clearly. <laughs> hospitality is something we know here in Texas in a huge way. And yet as we come to stories like Ananias and Saul, we're confronted with a kind of hospitality that seems too much. How could Ananias do this? How can he be expected to welcome this murderous, Christian-hating terrorist? Pray for him, call him brother. Verse 17 of our text is really, I think, the center of this moment today. Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on Saul said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me to you that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine how hard it was for him to say those words? I mean, C.S. Lewis, I think, encapsulates it well when he says, we all agree that forgiveness is a beautiful idea until we have to practice it. How was Ananias able to do this? I think the answer is really in his own words, that verse 17. If we look at his words and see what he said to Saul, I think in those words we find how he is able to do this. You see, in his words, in his own words to Saul of Tarsus, we see that Ananias knows Saul. He knows him. He knows this sinner He knows the great enemy, Saul. He knows Saul. But Ananias also knows the spirit and his power to transform. And Ananias, by his own words, not only knows Saul, not only knows the spirit, but Ananias knows that he's been sent. He knows Saul. He knows the spirit and he knows he has been sent. So first, Ananias knows Saul. He knows exactly the kind of person he's dealing with here. He knows the level and degree of sin before him in this man. Verse 17, his own words, he says, The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came. The road by which you came. Ananias is saying, I know why you were on that road. You were coming here, as we're told in verse 2 of the same chapter, that Saul had asked the high priest for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Verse 1 has described the character of this man. Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples. No wonder Ananias' response to the Lord's call for him to go and find this Saul is verse 13. Lord, many have told me about this man and the evil word, evil, that he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. Ananias is aware that this man, Saul, has got letters from the high priest to the synagogues in Damascus to come to Damascus and to bind all those in Damascus who call on the name of the Lord. And Ananias, as we're told in verse 10, is a disciple of the Lord in Damascus. 
Ananias knows that Saul has come for him. Ananias is the target. He's the victim. He's the persecuted one. And yet Jesus calls him to go to Saul. I mean, for, for, for Ananias, none of this is theoretical. None of this is hypothetical. What if? This is horrifyingly practical and real. My great enemy, who has been hunting me and my brethren down, is here. And the Lord says, I am to go to him. He knows Saul. You see, Ananias, I think, in this needs to have been able to acknowledge the full depth of the enmity between him and Saul. For this whole story to show the glory of God, he needs to understand exactly who it is he's dealing with. He knows Saul. As Bishop Tom Wright says, he says, many Christians have taken the paper over the cracks option of forgiveness, believing that's what forgiveness means. Pretending that everything is all right, that the other person really hasn't done anything wrong, but that simply won't do. If someone else has been abusive, offensive, aggressive, bullying, dishonest, or immoral, nothing whatsoever is gained by trying to create reconciliation without confronting the real evil that has been done. Forgiveness doesn't mean saying it didn't really happen, or it didn't really matter. Forgiveness is when it did happen and it did matter and you're going to deal with it and end up loving and accepting one another again anyway. Saul is known. Ananias knows Saul. When I was in Gambella, Ethiopia on my sabbatical a few years ago and I was confronted within this small Anglican seminary where we were teaching students that we had several different people groups, but among those people groups, the largest groups were the Anuak and the Nuer peoples. These were mostly South Sudanese refugees that had come across the border. And for both these people groups, they had spent generations killing one another. Whoever the government had put the guns into the hands of, they would be the ones killing the others and it would go back and forth. And the government kept the population control down by exchanging who got the guns every generation. And here are Anuak and New Air students in the same room, united, but they know of whom they each are. And that made the grace in that room all the more profound because they knew exactly who each other were. They knew the depth of the enmity. They knew the depth of the depravity between these two people groups. Ananias knows Saul. He is an enemy. But Ananias knows the spirit. He knows the spirit and he knows the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 17, again, his own words. The Lord Jesus Send me that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy Spirit. I think the best description of the Holy Spirit's work is in the book by Gordon Fee, one of my New Testament professors at Regent College, called God's Empowering Presence. The work of the Holy Spirit is God's Empowering Presence. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was poured out on prophets, priests, and kings 
to empower them for the Lord's work. But then on the day of Pentecost, after Jesus has been crucified for the sins of humanity, has risen from the dead, conquering sin and death, we then read these words. That when the day of Pentecost had arrived, the disciples were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven the sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And then verse 14 Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, in the last days it shall be, declares the Lord, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh." And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And now, ever since the day of Pentecost, Ananias and the disciples have seen the Holy Spirit's power poured out in this community. Chapter after chapter, they've seen healings. They've seen exorcisms. They've seen rooms shaken where they are standing. And I think most profoundly, they've seen a supernatural empowering of their own ministry. I think one of the best examples of this is Acts chapter 4. After Peter and John have healed the man who was born lame, and they're brought before the Sanhedrin, the same group that tried Jesus... Verse 13 of chapter 4 says that now when the Sanhedrin saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they'd been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. In other words, one of the greatest miracles of the Holy Spirit's outpouring is that people like Peter and John, ordinary people, are suddenly able to be bold and preach and proclaim and see healings and miracles take place. The transformation of these human lives is astonishing to the Sanhedrin. Supernatural empowering. In verse 15 of our text today, what does the Lord tell Ananias? The Lord tells Ananias that he is about to do the same thing with Saul. He's about to supernaturally transform Saul of Tarsus. Look at verse 15. The Lord says to Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen instrument, a chosen vessel, to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel and I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. It's Saul's total transformation. That's what the Lord is promising. Saul of Tarsus is going to be totally transformed. He's saying this. He's saying that the persecutor is going to become persecuted. He's saying that the one who bound the name of Jesus will now carry the name of Jesus and suffer for it. And the one who was zealous for Israel will now go to the Gentiles. 
It's a complete transformation. Saul of Tarsus will not be the same man. So Ananias, knowing the power of the Holy Spirit, goes and is expecting transformation. He knows the Spirit, therefore Ananias expects transformation. I think there's been a lot of transformation gone on in my family this last year and a half. As we've been transformed more and more to become Texan. We've learned to speak differently. I now say process instead of process. Decal instead of decal. When I look at a clock, I say it's quarter till, not quarter two. I read Fahrenheit, not Celsius. And I even like watching football. I've dropped whole terms that I used to use, terms like parkade, garburator, Canadian tuxedo. I've got cowboy boots, and I've got an opinion on how I like my grits cooked. (laughs) The transformation is becoming complete. But the question in this text is, do we know the Holy Spirit like Ananias knows the Holy Spirit? Do we expect the power of the Holy Spirit to transform our lives and the lives of those we pray for? Do we expect this power? I remember when I was in my very first parish, I had my very first appointment and it was with our treasurer. And so the treasurer and I had a good walk through the budget a seemingly normal administrative moment, at the end of which I said, as I say at the end of every meeting, how can I pray for you? And that, of course, opened up the floodgates. And she started telling me about her estranged daughter who had run off with a very abusive man and she hadn't heard from her in two years. And in that moment, I simply said, well, I think we should pray. And she said, really? I said, I think so. And so we prayed. We prayed, oh Lord, would you, by your power and might and glory, bring about the healing of this young lady and bring her home? And that Sunday morning, as I stood at the front door of the church greeting my new parishioners, in walked this treasurer with her daughter and said she phoned me the day after we prayed. Now, not every story ends this way, does it? But the point is, do we expect the Holy Spirit to even do this? Do we expect his power? See, Ananias knows Saul. He knows what an enemy he is. But he knows also the Spirit and his power to transform this enemy. And finally, though, Ananias knows he's sent. Verse 17 again. The Lord Jesus Christ sent me. The Lord Jesus sent me. He tells Saul, it was not a suggestion why I'm here. It was a command from the Lord. Three times in this text, Luke says, has the Lord speak these words to Ananias? Three times. Verse 10, the Lord said to him. Verse 11, the Lord said to him. Verse 15, the Lord said to him. Luke is making a point Ananias, the Lord has told you. He sent you. It's a command. 
But let's be clear. You and I today don't need a special vision from the Lord telling us to go, to go to our enemies. He's already told us. The commander has already given the command to all of his followers. We said it at the beginning of our service today as we began with a summary of the law. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And so humbled are we by this call in our lives. We immediately go to the Kyrie and say, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. I'm going to need your mercy and your help to even begin trying to live this love for God and love for neighbor. Because hasn't Jesus told us in Luke chapter 10, answer the question, who is my neighbor? As he tells the story of the good Samaritan, suddenly we realize that the Samaritans being the enemy of Israel, that the neighbor Jesus is speaking of is in fact not just those who it is easy to love, but our neighbors are those who are hard to love. Our neighbors include our enemies. Don't you see that this is what the gospel is? What God has done for you and I? The gospel, the good news of God in Christ Jesus is that the Father has sent the Son into the world to save his enemies. Jesus went at the sending of the Father to us, his enemies. As 1 John chapter 4, verse 9 says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Jesus sends Ananias to do what Jesus has already done for Ananias, loved his enemy. Jesus sends you and I to do what he's already done for us. Love our enemies. Matthew 5, verse 43. These words convict me to the core. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who who persecute you. And so in obedience, Ananias goes and prays for his persecutor. I mean, that's what verse 17 says. He enters and he lays his hands on him and says a prayer, brother Saul. Ananias is praying for his persecutor. Can you imagine how those words must have sounded to Saul? To be called brother And the result is a miracle. The result is resurrection. The result is a new life. As we saw last week, Jesus put Saul of Tarsus to death on the road to Damascus. 
But now, because of this healing prayer, Jesus brings Saul back from the dead. See, verse 18 says that then he rose. He rose. It's the word anastas, which is resurrection. It's a picture of Saul's own resurrection. Verse 19 says, and taking some food, which as I said last week, is the exact word that Jesus says after he raises Lazarus from the dead, says, give him something to eat. This is a resurrection story. The man who was dead, Saul of Tarsus, is now alive in Christ. And finally, verse 19, and for many days he was with the disciples in Damascus. He was with the disciples. The chapter begins with him coming to Damascus to bind murderously the disciples in Damascus. And now at the end, here he is with them in community with these disciples. Those he sought to kill, he is now calling brothers. And isn't it interesting, as one commentator says, that after he rises, it says that he takes some food. Could that not be the Eucharist? That the first taste of this new community is gathering at the Lord's Supper. My body given for you, my blood poured for you. How is Ananias able to do this? He knows Saul. He knows the Spirit's power to transform. And he knows he's sent. This is not a suggestion. Josh, that bitter young man, abusive father, who was a wife-beater alcoholic. Josh McDowell setting out to disprove Christianity, but confronted with the evidence that demands a verdict, becoming a Christian. But then that terrible car accident, laying in hospital, and his father came to see him. And Josh tells this story. He says, I said to him, Dad... I want you to know that I love you and I forgive you for everything. And his dad left the hospital room stunned, returned the next day furious and said, how can you do this? How can you love a man like me? And Josh said, dad, I have accepted Jesus into my life and through his love and forgiveness, I am a changed man. And Josh's dad looked at him and said, if this Jesus can turn a son's hatred into love for a father like me, then I will follow him too. That man turned around on a dime, sobered up, and became one of the most loving and generous men that that small town had known. He only lived another six months. But as a result of his transformation, scores of people in that small town turned to Christ. Look at the effect that such radical forgiveness, such radical welcome has in this world. So who is the Lord sending you to pray for?
In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.